Isaiah 41, beginning at verse 21, and reading down into chapter 42, page 726 in the Pew Bibles. And as we read, we do, of course, remember that this is God's Word to us this morning. Isaiah 42, 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in, all, bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay." Who told of this from the beginning so that we could know, or beforehand so we could say he was right? No one told us of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good tidings. I look, but there is no one, no one among them to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what the Lord, what God, the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you, a, you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us this morning. Well, if you have a Bible with you or close to you, let's turn together to Isaiah 42. Those verses that we read earlier, we're really thinking of Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Important that we read uh, those verses beforehand. We're going to refer to them a little bit as well. So if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 727, 727, right in the middle of the Bible. Once or twice I've had that job to do of collecting somebody from the airport that I'd never met before. Maybe you've had to do that. Nowadays, of course, with mobile phones, it's so much easier. You swap numbers and you phone each other and you arrange to meet at a certain point 
it's fairly straightforward. When I was doing it a number of years ago, that was the, the days before that was commonplace, and, and I was working off a description. Oh, you'll know him when you see him, you know? <laughs> uh, I don't know why people say that, but, but there you are. And, and maybe you've done that. You know, you've, you, you scan all those faces and you say, could that be him? Could that be him? And you're, you're trying to sort of match the person who's there and with the description that you've received until hopefully you, you recognize them. Well, all through the Old Testament, there are lots of descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them just words or phrases some of them quite oblique references, some of them much more detailed descriptions. And, and, and so the whole purpose of that is so that as we immerse ourselves in that, but as we learn about Jesus, we go, ah, yes, He is the one who has been described to me. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And what we're looking at this morning is one of those descriptions of the Lord Jesus given ahead of time, given 700-odd years or so before Jesus arrives, and at this stage, God's people were in a real mess. They were incredibly special to God, but they had not been treating God as special at all. They had persistently ignored what God had said. They'd gone their own way, and eventually, after many, many warnings, God had disciplined them. Their big problem was idolatry. They worshipped other gods alongside, as they thought, they were worshiping the true God. Now, the, the discipline that God brought on them was a terrible, terrible discipline. He allowed their land to be overrun by the Babylonians, and they, the people were carried off into exile in Babylon. Now, we might be very fast to say that they were very foolish to mess with God in such a way, but, but in lots of ways, they were really doing the sorts of things that God's people commonly do uh, today. That, that issue of idolatry and the fact that they were worshiping these other gods, and we found that there, there are something like 3,000 names of other gods around the Middle Eastern area at that time. But, but really what they were doing was they were looking and chasing after what the, the people of the day surrounding them really valued and thought was important. They, they were really just living for the things that these gods promised. And, and really, God's own people were just copying the culture in valuing and considering ultimate what the culture considered ultimate. And, and that's really what we, we do so easily, isn't it? We, we know that our society considers certain things as ultimate, as things that you must have or that are supremely valuable. So, for example, the idea that, that having and gaining stuff is really what's going to make your life worthwhile. We know that that's a, a, a myth that's really, really floated at Christmas, isn't it? The idea that, that power and influence and how others see you is really, really what matters or the idea that your own comfort and peace is what life is really all about. These are the things that our culture just treasures. And so often, more than we care to admit, God's people prize those same things much more than we should. Sometimes in how we really live our lives, we know that our lives are not very different from our unbelieving neighbors in these regards because we chase the same things that they do. Now, that was very much at the heart of the problem of God's people 
in Isaiah's day. And yet, although God was disciplining them, He was also able to speak real words of grace and hope to them at the same time. So, if you cast your eye back across the page to chapter one, chapter 41, uh, verses 8 to 13, this is, is what it says, "'But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. What a beautiful assurance from God to a very disobedient and a people who were under discipline. How is God able to promise hope to these people whose performance was so poor? How can He promise hope to us whose performance is often so poor? Well, the answer is because of the one who would come, because of the one who would come, His true servant. Israel here is called His servant, but Israel doesn't really live up to that job that God has given it. But there is a true servant coming who really will. And we meet him in chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. God says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Now, the servant's not identified in this passage, but it is a description of Jesus, and Jesus takes on this identity whenever He uh, comes to earth. But for a few moments, I want us just to think about this description of Jesus, what He is, who He is, what he does. If, if you like, if you're into uh, interviewing, you've done that maybe in a school, for example, for a, for a job, or you've been uh, applying for a job, you, you get both that uh, job description, what it is you're going to do, and a personnel specification, the sort of person you need to be in. And both of these things are here, the job that Jesus is going to do and the sort of person that he is. So, let's think about that. What, what does Jesus do, first of all? Well, if you notice in in these first four verses of chapter 42, one of the results of His work that is repeated again and again is the bringing of justice. Verse 2, I will put My Spirit on Him, and He will bring justice to the nations. Verses 3 and 4, in faithfulness He will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till He establishes justice on the earth. Now, justice for us, just we, we think about legal things, we think about courts and so on. But here it's a much broader notion. It's really a restoring of God's perfect order. It's everything right, just as it should really be. It's everything wrong put right. It's the sort of thing, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, that, that Tolkien had his characters say, where they said, of everything sad coming untrue. It's within that ultimate righteousness that this sort of justice flourishes. So, in the great story of the Bible, before everything went wrong, before the fall, there was, in that sense, perfect justice. God's rule was perfectly carried out, perfectly carried out by His 
people, Adam and Eve, who were God's servants to rule over what had been made. Perfect justice existed. But after the fall, all of that changed. People ignored God. They saw themselves as the center of the universe, and they started to exploit others, and therefore there was no justice. But Jesus, we read, is the one who will restore justice unto the, the nations. So, so here is a work of Jesus. It's a job description of Jesus, and it's on a massive scale. He'll restore justice to the nations, to the whole of God's creation. You might understand that because of verse 5. This is what the Lord says, because God describes Himself as the Creator, He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to all its people and life to those who walk in it. So, if the servant is going to do a work on behalf of this God who, who runs the universe, then we would understand that the, the work He's going to do is on this massive universal scale, justice restored for the nations. But the work that Jesus does is not just on a, on a grand scale, it's on a much more personal individual scale too. Look at verse 7. He's coming to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Now, there's the the Bible's analysis of what's going on with our lives. There, there's something wrong with the universe. There's no justice. God's rule has been overturned. But, but here in our lives, there's a problem too, isn't there? It's a picture of, of blindness and a picture of captivity, not a very positive picture at all. Our, our blindness refers to the fact that we cannot see things as they really are. Primarily, we think of ourselves as the center of the universe. And God, if we think of Him at all, is there to serve us and to build us up and to help us pursue our goals and, and to achieve our own personal happiness. But the way things really are is that He is at the center of all things, and we are here for Him, not the other way around. If we weren't blind, that would be clear to us. And it's as we as, as, as truth really is, as we put Him at the center, that we are the people that He made us to be. Blind, captive, it, we, we're imprisoned, we're slave to the things that we're following rather than to Him. And the Bible describes us as slaves to sin, so, so that inevitably we push God away and we follow our own agenda if we're left to ourselves. We're enslaved to going that way. We, we really can't do anything else. But well, you see, this Lord Jesus, in His job description, He's going to come, and He's going to deliver us from that. So, 700 years later, we read of Jesus, for example, stepping into a synagogue and coming up to speak, and He turns to a, a very similar passage from Isaiah, which includes these words, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for, for the captives, to release from darkness the prisoners. And he said, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. He says, this is what I'm here to do, opening eyes, releasing prisoners, restoring justice to the nation. So, so if you're a Christian here today, you, you know this. You sing about this. We sing about this here often, don't we? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My 
heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. We sing about a God who, who releases captives from prison, who opens our eyes. We really need this perfect servant, Jesus, to do this for us. And let's be clear that, that He really is doing this for us. He's not showing us what we need to do. It's not that He comes and shows us a better way to live that we might copy Him. Lots of folk think that. We hear that a lot at Christmas. People will say things like, oh, oh you know, that baby in the manger shows us what love is really all about and calls us to live loving lives and to bless others. You'll hear uh, ministers and bishops and religious people share that sort of message over Christmas. But that's not the heart of the Bible's story. And there's a line here that shows us that. The people, God's people, were in an agreement with God. It was called the covenant. God had come to them. He'd rescued them. He'd said to them, I will be your God. You will be my people. In other words, I've rescued this. This is now how you're to live. There'll be blessings if you do. There'll be discipline and judgment if you don't. But of course, we know that the people couldn't do that. They failed. It's part of the reason that they were in exile. They were covenant breakers. And yet God speaks these words of blessing to them, and He does so because He says in verse 6 of Jesus, He says, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. Jesus will be the covenant. You see, He was going to step in and do for the people what they could not do. He would live a perfectly obedient life, and He would take upon Himself the, the judgment that was due to their covenant breaking. So, so, let's be clear about that. The Lord Jesus doesn't come and give us a plan to save ourselves. He is not coming to show us the way. He is the way. He doesn't say, do this and God will rescue you. It's God who rescues. It's all in Him. We know, of course, that this rescue cost Jesus His very life. That's why we've been singing things today, not only about the, the cradle, but also about the cross. It's hinted at here where, where God speaks about upholding His servant in verse 1. It, serves as, it sounds as if the, the servant is going to have a really difficult job to do, and we know that it was a difficult job. This is the first of four servant songs in Isaiah, and as those servant songs go on, we find them to increasingly focus upon the suffering of the servant, so that later on, Isaiah can speak of us all like sheep going astray, but the Lord laying on Him the iniquity of us all. It can speak about the fact that, that the servant would be assigned a grave with the wicked. You see, to be the rescuer, to be the the one who would bring us the blessing of knowing God, he would have to deal with our punishment, and he would have to lay down his life. So, what is it that Jesus does? What's in his job description 700 years before he gets here? It is to put wrong, put right all that is wrong. It is to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. It is to set the spiritually captive free. Well, that's what He does. What's he, what's he like? Well, we might want to, to imagine that He's going to be incredibly powerful and aggressive as He comes to, to bring about this sort of change. Actually, in the verses that we read earlier at the end of chapter uh, 41, we read about somebody else that God had used in this way. He'd raised up Cyrus the Persian, 
That's what he's referring to in chapter 41, verse 25. He was the new sort of Donald Trump on the scene. He was the world leader, and he'd swept through the, re the region with a merciless efficiency. And you see how he's described in verse 25 of chapter 41, I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Well, that's how to get things done, isn't it? Great power, shock and awe, and there's no doubt that the work that Jesus is going to do is greater than any other work that's ever been done or ever will be done. So is that how he's going to come, with shock and awe? No, not at all. Look at the description of him in chapter 42, verses 2 and 3. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You see, this is not the the picture of a conquering tyrant, but of a gentle servant. Isn't this how Jesus comes? In gentleness, in humility. He conquers by humility. He, he enters the world, world humbly. We're going to read tonight some of the readings of, of how Jesus arrives to a, a couple on the move, laid in a manger where there's no room for them in the inn. What could be more humble as a beginning. And he conquers by humbly laying down his life, allowing himself to be beaten and going to a cross. When the time comes, he could have crushed all of those around him, and yet he allows his life to be taken from him. It's humble. These are beautiful pictures in verse 3, aren't they? A bruised reed he will not break. It's anything, it, you can hardly imagine anything more fragile than a bruised reed that's vulnerable. It's been damaged somehow. It would be easy for it to be fully snapped off, but no, it's not broken. It's, it's restored. And a smoldering wick, an oil lamp where the wick had gone, their flame had disappeared. It almost seems to have gone. Should it just be cut off and replaced? No, it's going to be coaxed back into life. And this is the way the Lord Jesus Christ deals with us, isn't it? it he, he's gentle. He's not discarding what seems useless to others. He's not snuffing out what seems beyond hope. This is Jesus. This is God saying 700 years before He arrives, He's coming, and you're going to recognize Him because this is what He's going to be like. We, we know that, that, that we find ourselves in difficult situations from time to time. All people do. We, we, we look and we feel like, like bruised reeds or, or like smoldering wicks. The, the, a, a little bit more pressure and we're broken. It almost seems as if all hope is gone. And maybe for some people, they, they, they hear a call to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a situation like that, and they think something like this. They think, you know, Jesus, don't I have enough problems just now? Isn't he going to add to the pressure that I'm under? A whole crowd of expectations? Well, that Jesus is not this Jesus. This is not a Jesus who makes things more difficult. This is a Jesus who, who heals and restores, who fans into flame hope where there seems to be no hope. Does following him bring challenges? Of course it does. But you must know that he is good. And what He is seeking to do in your life and in my life is good. Tim Keller tells this great story, we've used it before, of, of him walking along a street and hearing 
the mewing of a kitten coming from a, a drain, and he looks down into this drain, and uh, there's a little kitten just has managed to get itself wedged on a ledge too far below the surface to climb back up again, but just above a, a roaring torrent of water that would completely destroy it. And Keller describes how he was able to open the grating and reach down just far enough to, to grab the kitten. But the kitten saw this hand coming towards it, probably a wild kitten, and, and thought that, that Keller was there to destroy it, to kill it. And so it's spilling and it's scratching, and, and he manages to draw it out, but he's full of scars as he does so. We need to realize, you see, that the Jesus who draws near to us is really here to rescue us and not to harm us. We sometimes think that, that He's here to, to complicate our lives, to rob us of things that we really, really want, but He comes as a, a bruised, to come, He comes to us as if to a bruised reed or a smoldering wick to bring healing and hope. Is that the case with some of us, perhaps? We know that the Lord is drawing near to us, and we're sort of afraid of that. We're thinking, oh, no, He's coming to, to complicate my life but you have nothing to fear from him. What does he do? To put, wrong, to put right all that is, is wrong, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free. What is he like? He is the gentle servant who's coming to bless and restore. Now, you remember, just as we finish, you remember that the, the backdrop to all of this is that God's people kept turning away from this God to idols. We read at the end of chapter 42, chapter 41, that, that God is, is challenging the empty idols and saying, what can you do? What can you produce? Can you tell what's going to happen? And of course, the answer is no, because God knows that these idols, the things that His people so quickly run after, they can never deliver. But you see, God can. And so He says in chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. You see, God sees us, sees us running after things that are not God's. They cannot deliver. And He is determined not to have the praise that's due to Him go to them, for He knows that for us to go that way is to spell disaster. He is committed to having you and me see Him for who He really is, to know that there is no one better than the Lord Jesus Christ. That is for His glory and for our good, and He will love us and love us until we eventually get that. And so He says in chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant. You know, he's saying to us, look at this Jesus. Look at the empty idols. You can't do better than him. Does anything that you've been running after measure up to him? Of course not. So what do we say to him? What do, how, how do we respond to him? Ray Ortland puts some words together for us like this. Lord, you are the only hope of the world, and my only hope. I admit my share of the world as it is. Forgive my injustice. Destroy my idols. Make me the kind of human being that lives up to your name. 
You alone are my salvation, and I give my allegiance entirely to you. Is that it? As God says, behold my servant, do we say, I give my allegiance entirely to you? Let's pray together as we talk to him. Lord, we almost, we almost feel that the pride in your words, here is my servant whom, I'm, whom I uphold, for we know that you delight in your Son, and we pray that you will help us here today to believe that we cannot do better than this Lord Jesus, that you will help us to know that He is our salvation, and that we Give our allegiance entirely to Him. Maybe for some of us, Lord, that's the first time. Maybe for some of us, it's one of those repeated actions for many, many occasions. But help us, Lord, to know that the Lord Jesus is all that we have and the best that we have. And we pray in His name. Amen.